This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. episode of the Everything Went Black podcast. Fellow horseman, Carl Hikara joins us this week. Carl is the host of Soul Knox, and he is one of the horsemen of the podcasting apocalypse. As some of you know, we've been doing this collaboration called Darkness Weaves, and uh, we cover the work of Carl Edward Wagner. As an extension of that effort, this episode is dedicated to an overview of of the author Robert E. Howard, who is widely considered the father of sword and sorcery. And uh, this kind of fits in with our efforts with uh, Darkness Weaves. So, you know, we'll be talking more about this stuff. I think uh, we're going to be delving deeper into this between both of our uh, shows, Everything Went Black and Soul Knox. So this is a little bit of a bridge to another realm. As I mentioned, Carl is part of the Illuminati of podcasting known as the horsemen of the podcasting apocalypse the other members of this elite group are monday harwolf 666 which is brought to you by brandon legion on tuesday into the necrosphere pops off with jackie smith covering all things extreme metal and really one of my favorite extreme metal music podcasts Wednesday, of course, it's Everything Went Black. Thursday, I return with Mike Scandato and or Jeff Kashid for Necromaniacs Horror Podcast. We talk about movies, that sort of thing. Fridays is Break the Apocalypse with uh, Mike's brother, John Draper. And that's uh, an irreverent current events podcast. Saturday is a day off. Go out, enjoy yourself. Take a ride in the country. Get some vitamin D. You know, the sun, that sort of thing. Touch some grass. But on Sunday, we come back with the Soul Knox podcast brought to you by Carl Hikara, who is coincidentally the guest on this week's show. If you enjoy this, definitely check us out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, all of that. If you want to support the show, you can jump over to Patreon and for as little as $1 a month, you can support the podcast, get access to bonus material for $5 a month, access to the bonus material and early access to the shows that are on the regular stream for $25 a month you can become a sponsor so come at us and let us know what you think of all this stuff those of you out there who have been listening to uh, the darkness weaves episodes will understand that carl and i are huge fans not only of horror but we're also fans of um dark fantasy, sword and sorcery. And uh, similar to Wagner, Carl Edward Wagner, 
Rob, Robert E. Howard not only wrote heroic fantasy, dark fantasy stories, but he also wrote a lot of horror stuff, which we're going to talk about as well. And um, I guess this idea was something that you and I have been kind of kicking around, um, you know, kind of uh, casually about either doing something that's a strictly Conan related uh, show for Soul Knox or some related podcast that you were going to do. And uh, so I just figured we'd take this opportunity to kind of like, you know, start, start talking about Robert E. Howard and his impact kind of as a precursor to any kind of uh, future efforts that we might put out there. Yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, Howard is kind of one of the figures we always kind of come back to in all these kind of conversations. Like, and obviously if people want to hear more of a segment of Howard, they can um, go back to the Solonox um, Eldritch Tales episodes he did about, uh, I think we did the Blackstone yep. and we did um, uh, Wolf's Head. Yep. So those, yeah. those are a couple of his horror stories that we've covered in the past. And um, Yeah, I mean, obviously like Robert E. Howard and the Conan stories and um, and there are all this other stuff like Cole and Solomon Kane and Bran McMorn and all this horror stuff. I mean, all these things are probably some of my favorite favorite stuff since I was a kid. So, yeah. of course, do a little biographical info on Robert E. Howard. So, uh, Robert Irvin Howard, born January twenty second, nineteen oh six, in Peaster, Texas, and died by his own hand, June eleventh. 1936 in Cross Plains, Texas. And he was only uh, 30 years old at the time. And um, he took his own life shortly after the passing of his mother. And um, 30 years old is a very young age to be leaving this mortal coil. And, uh, you know, it, to me, it seemed like he was at the height of his uh, creative powers. So it was a real loss, I think, to the world of uh, heroic literature, dark fantasy and horror, if you ask me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you think about it, like, um, what else could he have done if he if he hadn't killed himself? I'm sure he would have written a lot more stuff. I mean, I know that at the time of his death, he was also kind of going off into doing some like more Western themed stuff. Um, I'm sure he would have kept doing heroic fantasy and, and horror as well, right? But I mean. I definitely feel like there was a lot definitely it was like a, a big loss for you know because it, i do think that i think that if he had kept going i think that um obviously the pulp literature world kind of started like crashing down you know around world war ii but i think that he probably could have like made that leap into uh like how some of his contemporaries like Robert Block and those kind of guys into like the paperback publishing world and everything like, you know, if he had lived, cause he, he died in what was like 1937. 1936. According 1936. To the... yeah. I mean, imagine if, you know, he lived until the sixties, you know, and seventies, I mean, he could have, cause he could have, I mean, he would have been 60, 60, you know, in 1966, you know, I mean, he could have lived, um, up until the eighties pretty much, you know, I mean, like, so I, I would imagine that, that we would with the with the rate of material that he pumped out in the time of his life, I mean, we probably would have had like huge stacks of literature. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, the, the, what's interesting to mention about him is is um Howard was part of that whole weird tales, you know, pulp fiction 
uh, movement of the early 20th century. And all these writers, like that, that's pretty much how they made their living was just writing short stories to be published in these uh, magazines like Weird Tales and um, Argosy was another one. And, yeah. um, you know, Robert E. Howard's contemporaries were another one of our favorites, uh, you know, H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. was also one of his contemporaries they're actually really good friends and pen pals uh clark ashton smith and you mentioned uh robert block you know those are kind of like the main you know players at least out of the people that i like reading that that were part of that scene yeah and you also had um um lang um uh fuck um he wrote like the hounds of tindalos um uh belk Long. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, and um, yeah, like uh, I'm trying to think of everybody else, but yeah, I mean, those are like the main, the main core would be those those ones, like, and I mean, um, once like Howard and Lovecraft got hooked up, and you know, Lovecraft was kind of the center of like this whole like group, you know, like, I mean, people always talk about him not want not being like have this like fantasy about Lovecraft being this kind of like reclusive, like guy, he doesn't talk to anybody or whatever, but he was the opposite of that. He was like the guy who's trying to get, create all these, like he wanted groups of friends. He's constantly traveling to visit his friends. And you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, so he kind of, so he kind of set up this whole whole, uh, group of people, people, uh, through which I was like I think it was all like letters like you know like letter writing and um because he never him and Howard never ended up meeting but right uh I think I think Lovecraft was planning and going to visit Howard but then Howard killed himself and then Lovecraft died like he, two years later or something like that so, yeah the same thing with Clark Ashton Smith too like they had all been writing letters together. Uh, there was a documentary, the Clark Ashton Smith documentary, Emperor of Dreams, where um, he talks about um, never meeting H.P. Lovecraft in, in person, how when he passed away, it was like a huge, he felt it as a huge personal loss. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've been corresponding for a long time. Well, Clark Ashton Smith, I think, also was in California. So I think it was very unlikely yeah. that, that in, you know, 1930 or whatever, that Lovecraft was going to be able to afford to take a train all the way across the country you know <laughs> but, yeah you know and howard howard was down in texas so they're all in the triangle triangular shape across the country you know yeah distances you had uh robert block i believe was in minneapolis and you had um i believe it was minneapolis uh and Bel- but belknap long and and lovecraft and were were good friends and in, in, in person you know like when Lovecraft lived in in New York, that's where Long Lang, Long was, and they had like their little group that would get together every week and have coffee and talk about literature and stuff. Um. So yeah, yeah. The letters, the letters of um, <clears throat> Robert E. Howard and H. P. Lovecraft were uh, collected in two volumes: uh, "A Means to Freedom," which is uh, edited by our uh, one of one of our heroes, uh, S. T. Joshi. <laughs> yeah. And uh, published by Hippocampus Press. So if anyone's out there interested in in learning about the relationship that Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard had, it's all pretty much lined out there in both volumes of that collection. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, even they're really good friends. But I think, like, 
they had pretty different ideas about certain things and that was actually kind of common with lovecraft like he was friends with people who had complete opposite beliefs as him like he he just had, had no problem with that you know what i mean it's not one of those people who was like oh you you're you know long was a socialist and stuff and like lovecraft was just kind of you know poke fun at it here and there but he, they there was like respected for each other you know what i mean and with howard and lovecraft lovecraft was very much about the idea of civilization um and the the ideas of civilization ideals of the enlightenment and i feel like howard was this kind of i mean i think he believed in he's kind of more of like libertarian he believed in barbarism you know what i mean like he he kind of felt like society civilization was a sham you know like yeah. and that that in the end barbarism will always conquer you know and and that i think if if you look at where they're coming from i mean like howard is in texas you know he grew up in you know when he was a kid there's i mean even when i was a kid growing up here in colorado i mean like my mom used to hang out with all these cowboy guys and stuff and this was in the 80s early 90s you know what i mean like i mean imagine early 1900s that was just out of the wild west like howard grew up with all these kinds of guys around him and you know like very much probably great growing up in a somewhat barbarous type of type of situation in in texas you know what i mean like or so this kind of so-called civilization was kind of making his progress there. I think definitely. Yeah, uh, he was like a more of a physical guy as opposed to uh, you uh, Lovecraft too. Like Howard was more, you know, he like boxed and did all this sort of you know physical stuff. Exactly, and um, I mean, where I think both of them did like agree though is in their general um, sense of um, nihilism and. Um, and, be, and pessimism about about humanity and humanity's place in the universe and the future of humanity, you know. <laughs> yeah, totally. But just speaking to your, um, but the the comment you made about uh, his um, sort of reluctance to embrace civilization in, with respect to Robert E. Howard, probably one of his more lesser known characters, the uh, the Almerich, um, you know, uh, well, it's a novel. It's, it's a novel, but it was a uh, serialized originally yeah the one you uh, that, me. The, yeah that that character even though it was uh heavily influenced by by edgar rice burroughs john carter of mars that character esau cairn is like typifies what i consider to be the kind of ethos that uh that robert e howard had you know it's like a guy that lived in modern society but was kind of failing in modern society and then he gets transported to this barbaric planet and he becomes that he thrives you know what i mean it's yeah. like <laughs> yeah it's like a total rejection of civilization for this more primordial state and that's like where he flourishes you know so i feel like even though that character is, is a obscure character i mean he's not you know conan is what mostly people think of when they think of robert e. howard's writing um but I feel like I've always I always felt like like the Almora character, which hardly like anyone even talks about that that book at all. Um, really, I feel like he put a lot of his own personality and his own beliefs into that character. You know? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, it almost seems like a little bit of a fantasy for him. Like, <laughs> what if I could yeah. go into? But he, there is that idea of like, yeah, here's a character who is struggling to deal with civilization and, and everything and he goes there and 
yeah, it's like that's like the best best place for him. Like he finds himself like uh and I feel like I feel like Howard did feel like that a lot, it seemed like from, from things I've read about him, like that he felt kind of uncomfortable with like the way that civil civilization was and the kind of pressures of of existing in this kind of civilization. Like like um he was very much he's very had it he felt like um he had this abhorrence of slavery and the idea of like he felt like that the kind of way that a lot of modern society was going was a kind of different form of slavery essentially you know slavery to the state to work and pay your taxes and until you die you know what i mean like that kind of stuff sure. like he seemed to have a lot of abhorrence of and that's something a lot of people don't seem to realize about howard was was his kind of he was very i mean if you look at like he was very much had an opposition to to slavery in general i mean even if you read the conan stories like conan's like always like setting free the slaves and stuff like that you know what i mean like like i think that that was kind of a horrific idea to to howard you know when did you what was your introduction to robert e howard's writing i was i'm always interested to find out how people find the character you know find the writer or what characters like how did you you know, stumble upon all this stuff. Well, it definitely was uh, was Conan, and um, was probably originally through the uh, comic books. So right. I had um, like a lot of the um, Conan comics uh, from the '80s, primarily, like because I still have have a lot of them. And um, that was kind of my introduction. I mean, I was look real even before I could really read. I was like, you know got the comic books to look at them and stuff. And then as I learned to read, I could, I, you know, could read them. And that's probably where I was introduced to the idea. Conan, I could see Robert E. Howard's name. And then my dad was already familiar, you know, my dad was familiar with Howard and Lovecraft and all this stuff. And um, since he knew that I liked Conan, I think um, that's how I think he bought me like the paperback, like some of the paperbacks, you know, the ace paperbacks. And then, once I started reading the Howard's, Howard stories and those ace paperbacks with the Frazetta covers, and um, I try, I pretty quickly bought all of them. And then a little bit later, I started figuring out that some of the stories weren't actually by Howard, they're by Sprague or DeCamp or Lynn Carter, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. But, you know, regardless, it was, it was basically through Conan. Yeah, I remember it was pretty much the same with me, man. It's like, I, I, I think I had read lord of the rings first you know like the you know the tolkien stuff and uh that was you know interesting to me kind of sparked my interest in, in fantasy in general and um there was that ralph bakshi like lord of the rings animated movie that came out yeah and um i thought that the imagery in that i remember seeing that in the theater with my dad and um like the imagery in there was like super intense you know for being a, you know a young kid and, yeah. uh, and then um, there was, it's funny, I've talked about this store like many times over the last several years on this podcast. Um, in the home, my hometown, Carmel, New York, there's a, uh, t uh, there used to be a, a store called the, literally called the Book and Record Store. <laughs> that was the name. Of the book. Says it on it the, says on it the cover. Right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's all right there. Man. You go there to buy books and records and like, you know, calendars and stuff like that. And um, 
so you know i went in to the book and record store and there was um you know the lord of the rings you know box set thing that they had you know and i picked that up and read it and i was also way into comic books too you know as a, kid, as a young kid and mostly all the superhero fare you know batman you know like that kind of stuff heavily more towards the marvel comics so that's how i started seeing conan the conan comic book and at first i was like I didn't know what to make of it. You know, I'm like, is this guy like a superhero or what? And then in one of my excursions into the book and record store, I saw that there were all these, the, the same paperbacks you're referring to, the ace paperbacks with the, the Frank Frazetta covers and the Frazetta stuff that, I mean, I, what, what a great idea to have that guy do the covers, you know? Yeah, it's <laughs> perfect. It's, <laughs> it's outstanding. It's like some of the most intense artwork put on that type of book. So that drew me right in. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was reading it. I was a very avid reader at a young age. And I remember my parents buying me, you know, several of those Conan books. And then that, and that's what hooked me, the short stories, you know, reading the powerful uh, writing, you know, and it was very direct as opposed to uh, Tolkien, whose writing was like a little more academic, I guess, you know? And um, so, yeah, I tore right through that. Then, not so much the color comics of Conan. It was Savage Sword of Conan, which really drew me in. Because, you know, back then in the 80s, there weren't really, uh, new, you, you know, you, there were a few, a handful of comic shops around. Nowhere, nowhere near where I lived. I had to go, you know, to a different, my dad had to drive up to this other town to go to a comic book store. So we would go to like just a newsstand. And, um, you know, they had the Savage Sword stuff with the, the magazines like heavy metal and all that kind of stuff. So the big, large format Savage sort of Conan with the painted covers drew me in way more than the four color comic, even though that I did end up getting into that as well. But, and, and the stories in Savage sword were adaptations of, of the, of the, the short stories in, in the, in the books. And then there was also like uh there'd be these essays about the Hyborian age and, um, you know, about Robert E. Howard. There was also backup stories. There was like a solemn ongoing Solomon Kane backup story in Savage Sword back in the eighties. And I felt like you got more bang for your buck, you know, reading the black and also the black and white thing was a little more violent and it wasn't, you know, it was a magazine. So that's how they got around the comic book code with it too. Yeah. They had, yeah, nudity in the comic in the magazine too. <laughs> so like I was able to fool my parents into buying me, you know, a, a comic book that's got, you know, like naked women in it and and uh, <laughs> you know, like violence. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love both. Like, um, cause I really love the comics as well, but uh, yeah, the obviously Savage Sword is untouchable. And yeah, I mean, they had both Kane, Solomon Kane backup stories, which I remember you bought the collection of those. And yes. uh, I have a collection of the just the coal ones. Yep. So I have the Savage Sword of Coal, which is all the coal stories from from there. I'd like to get the Solomon Kane one. Kind of sucks right now because um, Howard's stuff went into into public domain. Yeah. And um, because of that reason, Disney's like, well, we're not going to pay uh since disney bought marvel and they have no respect for anything they're like we're not gonna pay the howard estate for the rights to this stuff so they just like they're in the process of doing all these reissues 
these epic collection reissues of the comic books and stuff. And they just dropped it. They just fucking like, no, we're not doing. They canceled all the Conan comics. They just dropped it completely. Yeah, I only there's th- I think three volumes of the Call um, stuff from back then, like the the Roy Thomas uh, Call stories. I only have one. I don't have the other two. Yeah, I have. Um, I have a couple of the old the the Dark Horse issues of the Call ones. I have the Savage Sword of Call, and then. Um, yeah, I have all the I have, I have like the couple of the omnibus. I have a Savage Sword omnibus. I have one of the Conan main storyline omnibuses, and then I have a bunch of the I bought like the first some of the epic collections that they issued, which I need to try to get the rest of them before they go out of print. And um, and I have some of the old Dark Horse reissues. The problem with those Dark Horse reissues, though, that they did is that they fucked with the color. And they did yeah. this kind of shitty digital color on them that looks like dull and kind of just looks like muddy. Right. And any if you compare like those to the actual original, like you know, to like say the omnibus version or the epic collection ones, it's just like it's not the same. Like I don't like that the kind of muddy digital color that Dark Horse did to all those Conan comics. Like I like the original bright, you know, four color the way it's supposed to be. You know what I mean? I don't want to see some crappy digital. <laughs> No, totally. I'm definitely. Yeah, that that's um, yeah. Cole was. It's interesting, man, because Cole like never really caught on in the same way Conan did. And Marvel tried to do like a bunch of different reboots. It was like Cole the Destroyers. You know, Cole the Destroyer. Um, he had his. I think he had his own black and white comic for a while, or or some, or at least he was a backup feature for a long time. But um, yeah, people just didn't seem to be as interested in his stories. You know. Yeah, I think um well I think part of the problem is you got you got Conan, you know what I mean? Like uh Conan was particularly with the comics was definitely a lot more uh um just I think people I don't know, it's a lot more awareness of him. I think a lot of people didn't really know who Cole was, you know. And I'm yeah, but I mean they did do like the Cole like comics and they did the Cole and then Dark Horse did some Cole comics, like, you know, like their own. You know how Dark Horse did their Conan series? Yeah. They did a Cole series. And they started doing a Solomon Kane series, but I think they only did one one storyline, which is pretty yeah. good, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely like the um, Dark Horse stuff. But you know what, man? I got to be honest. When, when Roy Thomas was doing the entire, like, he was, like, the man when it came to, like, the Robert E. Howard universe. Yeah, I mean, he's writing, he wrote pretty much everything. Like, I mean, all the first, I think, 200 issues of the Conan um, Rager comic was written by Roy Thomas and almost all of the Savage Sword. Like, I mean, that guy was fucking, he was going to town, you know what I mean? Like, he was working, he did all, he was pretty much the mastermind of the Conan saga at Marvel. And, um, I mean, his shit, the way he did it was, was perfect. I mean, and yeah, I mean, like, with the Dark Horse, like, I like some of them. Um, some of them I don't like the art very much. They had a really good version of um, the Hand of Nurgal. This is a good right. one I like a lot. Um, Black Col- their version of Black Colossus is pretty good as well. But yeah, I definitely prefer the uh, the Marvel Conan as a whole, both the Savage Sword and the, the Rager series. Now, most people, uh, it's widely considered that uh, Howard is the creator of sword and sorcery or at least one of the creators you know what i mean 
And um, if I'm not mistaken, his first story, wasn't it a call story? Wasn't the Shadow Kingdom his first short story to get published? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, like Cole, 26. Yeah, Cole was on the first, and and um, yeah, that's where he started off was with Cole. And um, and that and we should point out too that Lovecraft's favorite stuff by Howard was the Cole stories. Like he he liked how Cole is more brooding, and there was a darker, more eldritch feeling to a lot of the Cole stories. Um, and uh, which show? I mean, definitely Conan has some of that as well. Like, uh, but Conan's a little bit more, um, you know, rollicking. I guess you could say. You know, what I mean, Conan's not as brooding as. He has his moments of brooding, but he's not as brooding as Cole. You know, Cole's like pretty much, um, you know, he's the king of Atlantis, but he's like kind of, I don't know. He he has like there's like a lot of insecurity because yeah. you know he's an usurper, and you know, in Conan's an usurper, he sees it like I took this by my like my hands, like I'm gonna run this. You know, I can say Conan the Conqueror or whatever, but in with Cole, he has like a kind of insecurity about it, and in a way, he should be insecure because you got literally like reptile people trying to kill all yeah. this stuff. <laughs> yeah, the Cole stories were definitely more Lovecraftian. Like they definitely had more, and you know, they they also kind of fit into the mythos a little bit too, with some of the references and whatnot in the stories. Yeah, I mean, all the stuff is is mythos related. Like, um, like I think we talked about it last um, on. Darkness weaves that people haven't heard yet as of the recording this, so <laughs> here later. But uh is um uh in in um Hour of the Dragon or you know, Conan the Conqueror as it's known in the paperback version, um the novel, the one Conan novel, you have a whole section where he encounters the ghouls, like the Lovecraftian ghouls, you know, like um and all throughout the Conan stories he runs into to Lovecraftian entities, so pretty much we can basically say safely say that Cole, Conan, Solomon Kane, Bran McMurray, all of all of Howard's characters are in the same universe as Lovecraft's universe. You know, it's one and the yeah. same thing. Yeah, and that you know that that's you know in, in no small part due to their uh, close correspondence, you know, which is all chronicled in those two volumes that Hippocampus put out. Yeah, it's interesting too because uh, I believe the Cole stories probably like um, in because in, in 1926 i believe the lovecraft had maybe it was like call cthulhu was out at that time right i think that's yeah it's, that's the same timeline yeah same and, about that same time. and i don't know if they were in um conver like if they knew each other at the time like if they were when the cole story came out maybe i'm not sure i'd have to look into that but um See some of my notes here. I think that's why I mentioned when. Howard, okay. So Howard wrote a letter to Weird Tales in praise of Lovecraft's Rats in the Walls. Okay, so that was like 1923 or something, right? So Yeah, so it was before. Okay, so they, and uh, because of his use of some sort of, uh, you know, old Gaelic um, references. So um, the one of the editors and probably the most well-known editor of Weird, Weird Tales was uh, a, guy, a guy named Farnsworth Wright. So he forwarded Robert E. Howard's letter to H.P. Lovecraft, and that kicked off their pen pal relationship. So that was back in 23. Okay, yeah. So so they definitely, yeah. definitely like that their 
it was in full force by the time he was doing a call. So definitely like, yeah. you, I mean, and I think it was very purposeful, you know, and, and then you can look at his horror stories as well, like the black stone, which is very much Lovecraftian and the other, other big influence on his horror stories, I believe is Arthur Machen. I think Machen, like if you look at the influences, horror, horror influences on, on Howard, it's Machen and then Lovecraft. Cause Mach, you know, cause like, um, cause Howard ha- has all these stories about these, um, kind of like non-human like lizard people basically you know what i mean that show up in he has a whole like saga of stories about these like non these pre-human non-human entity beings you know that still kind of are existing and calls them the children of the earth and everything and they show up in um i think the one with the brand mac Morin is probably one of the yeah, best versions of that warm to, warm to the earth yeah exactly and that was yeah. very much influenced by Machen, you know. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, there, there's like a kind of, um, yeah, where where Bran McMorn, uh finds out the witch, and she's like a crossed with some ancient race. She's not fully human, and uh, to get revenge on the Romans, he, you know, he has to, uh, you know, call upon the, uh, you know, the the worms of the earth, you know, to come and seek, you know, meet out his revenge. And they're they're definitely like these. Mackin-esque creatures that live beneath the surface, you know. Well, of that story too, he goes underground to like one of their altars, and he finds there's like this black stone that he takes, which is how yeah. he gets them to do his will. And that black stone is obviously supposed to be the sixty stone, the Exasar stone, and the Mackin's um, novel, The Black Seal. Uh-huh. So, it's obviously like kind of inspired by that, and of course, you know. Machen's very big influence on Lovecraft as well, like with, with, um, in uh, the story the Whisper in Darkness, they have on those black stones as well. That, uh, the, um, uh, what's his name? The guy up in Maine, uh, up in Vermont, discovers and and tries to mail it down to the other character, and it disappears. <laughs> that same character, and I forgot his name too. Yeah. Like yesterday, I was actually talking about that character, and it, it always escapes me. Yeah, the, the the main character W. Um. Yeah, I can't think of his name. So I mean, the uh, so yeah, the, all these things are definitely like interspersed like through all this all this work. And the funny thing though is in the the Blackstone and and the story of the Blackstone by Howard is not this type of thing. It's actually like a standing stone <laughs> that's like a remnant of some ruined ancient civilization you know speaking of standing stones totally unrelated but have you seen uh ennis main that movie yet um uh-uh. i don't know what that is man it's um i saw that in a movie theater and i also purchased uh purchased the blu-ray of it and it's um it's like one of these like british weirdo films that takes place in like Cornwall, you know, it's like definitely a weird tale that has to do with like these standing stones. There's like hardly any dialogue in it, mostly imagery. Um, highly recommend that one. It's uh, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere yet, just yet, but it's something to keep your eye out for. It's called any, any main. And, um, Maine is it's spelt any men, but the uh, Cornish way of pronouncing M E N is Maine. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah I, I, I've not seen that. Uh, sounds like my kind of thing, though. <laughs> oh yeah, that no, was great. I went to see it in the theater on Easter, and it was um, by my. I went like in a morning showing in the city in, in Manhattan, and uh, it was it was incredible. It was great. It was a, you know just really cool like film. You know, really a lot of. I'm glad I saw it on a big screen. You know, it was one of one of the one of the priorities to see that on a screen screen. Yeah, I think the one thing that uh, with all that kind of stuff, uh, one of my favorite stories, and I keep forgetting the name of it, but it's by Howard. It's um, it's set in American. It's set in Texas, so it's set in his area, and it's the same type of story where there's these mounds, and the main character like goes and starts digging in the mound, and then ends up like encountering like the these like um the lizard people but it's actually like here in the states you know and um i feel like that was kind of where howard was going with a lot of his work towards the end of his life was kind of localizing things like it seemed like he wanted to kind of like make the texas version of uh arkham you know what i mean <laughs> yeah no that that's that's really interesting that um because most, when you think of like folk horror or any kind of like you know Mackin esque kind of thing, you you would you you always visualize it taking place in like ancient uh, Britain or something like that or in Europe, and um, not in the United States, you know. And I feel like some of the later Howard stories were definitely almost making this like American Gothic version of that, you know, like this you know taking place in Texas and in the plains and stuff like that, but also drawing into ancient American you know mythologies yeah i think he was bringing a lot of that that element into it which which i thought was a pretty interesting idea and i mean um lovecraft kind of he did that one um collaboration story called the cult of yig i don't know if you ever read that one and that, I've that, read that one actually that one is set in oklahoma and uh it's kind of goofy but um but I could tell that that maybe Lovecraft was uh, kind of making a little nod at uh, Howard and that, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, let's write and make a story set in kind of the in uh, Oklahoma area, you know. The horror from the mound is that the um, the Texas story? I think it might be. Um... Yeah, I think that's the title of it. I was just kind of thinking about some of the horror stories that Robert E. Howard wrote. I always forget the name of it. Yeah, I think it's Horror from the Mound. Cause yeah, with the with the serpent, the the lizard people like um, stories, you have like one that's like um, uh, he has. I think there's two of them, which also include um, people reliving past lives. Oh, um, yeah. There's, there's two of them that are like that. One of them, the guy like gets knocked out and then he wakes up and realizes his friend was was like a lizard person remnant you know and then the other one is the guy who played who's co named conan conan of the reavers and he's like chasing some late like lady into like these uh caves and turns out that uh like and he's in the caves in in real life but then he goes into the caves in in the past life and has to fight a bunch of these lizard people you know um and then and then you have the horror of the mound which is set in american southwest and um worms of the earth obviously i think that's all of the lizard people stories yeah yeah howard another one of his favorite topics seems to be the idea of reincarnation and uh 
you know, having past lives and that whole thing, which I always found to be very interesting with some of his writing. It's almost like, I mean, maybe this isn't really the case, but in my mind, I always felt like all of his characters, because they all took place in different eras of um, human history, could have actually been similar to Michael Moorcock's eternal champion character, you know, made of the same essence and just reincarnated like over the centuries. I think there is an element of that, that, that I think, I do think that that is intentional. I think that there is kind of a, uh, a deliberate echo of from Cole to Conan to Brand McMorn, you know what I mean? Like to Solomon Kane, where they all kind of share the same essence and they seem in a lot of ways, you know? Um, Yeah. they're They're all sort of like Northern European types too. You know what I mean? It's like part of the same, you know, in the same world you know, the same part of the world, the same kind of, you know, Northern European savage, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think they're kind of intended to be, um, like Conan is described as being dark haired and gray eyed and kind of like, um, he's not like a super white character. You know what I mean? He's not like, um, uh, you know, like he's not because there are the Aesir and the Vanir who are like the Nordic yeah. style, yeah. But he's almost kind of like supposed to be like, like with the Samaria. I mean, that's very much that's a that's a Celtic tribe. I think like he's kind of modeled after certain types of people you'll see in like Germany and stuff where they're kind of like have that Celtic element to them, you know? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, or even Northern Italy, you know. Um, and then. Yeah, but then Cole Cole is um he's not a pick. He's uh is it um no, but he's actually Cole or Cole is Atlantean and that's right. Kingdom that he was king of is Volusia. That's right, yeah, he's Atlantis. Because in the in the story, the Atlant by the time Cole was around, the Atlantis had already like I think hadn't already been like they'd like fallen once and now he's like they're kind of like re now they're bar- barbarians basically yeah yeah so this is like after the cataclysm of, of atlantis and they're like become these them and the picks become these like um barbar barbarians and they're building themselves back up and then yeah there's Volusia, which is the place that he rules but yeah and that's one thing that he's also really obsessed with is the idea of the rise and fall of civilizations yeah and um, this is something I really believe in. And and there's like, it's interesting. It's really interesting to me because um, back in the day, Einstein, I forget what the guy's name, he was this um, scientist who had this idea that humanity had maybe survived some cataclysms in the past, yep. you know, that, oh, cool. that progress wasn't this kind of like upward elevate, upward ladder. And Einstein backed this guy and he thought, and he kind of, you know, felt like his theories had validity but then after einstein died all the scientists scientific community just blackballed this guy because it was basically heresy to the myth of progress that that science you know a lot of scientists have you know what i mean like the idea that we're not just an upward ladder that idea that there's ups and downs in human history seems to be kind of like anathema to a lot of people in the scientific community you know what i mean yeah i mean that that's also a very fascinating concept that i've you know, after, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, there's like tons of references in the different mythologies of like 
you know, a great flood or like some cataclysm that, you know, wiped out like a large portion of, you know, civilizations and whatnot. And, you know, the history of the planet and the history of mankind on the planet is such a microscopic portion, you know, and the idea that this trajectory that we're in is the only trajectory of development of civilization is like completely like just mankind's like hubris really in a lot of ways. And I think that I, I tend to agree that civilizations rise and fall. I mean, if you think about even the concept of the dark ages, post Roman empire, post fall of the Roman empire, where, you know, it, I mean, the dark ages happened over hundreds of years, the decline of the Roman empire happened over hundreds of years. And it was a slow decline where things just kind of collapsed. And then, you know, some of the remnants were, were like the, the aqueducts and all that stuff existed, but no one knew how to use that technology. And this darkness swept across Europe and people just lost the ability to do these things. And in a, in a sort of microcosmic level, I was watching a documentary about these towns in West Virginia that were, um, you know, coal mining towns where they flourished not even 100 years ago, like within the last century. They had all this prosperity and culture and a thriving economy because of these coal mine, coal companies. And then once they left, the buildings remained. People, did, you know, all, all the problems of a poor economy started invading these societies there. And there's the remnants of a better way of life, you know, a more prosperous way of life and just squalor and abandonment and ruin taking over these towns so in a microcosmic level it's almost like that seems that seems to be more of the natural trajectory than just like constant linear pro progress you know yeah i definitely think that constant linear progress is completely uh an illusion that people have that you know that and i feel like that's becoming more and more clear over time i feel like maybe now more than say 1950s like, like in 1950s, that idea was heresy. Like these people had very much like this idea of progress. Like, you know, it was a lot more clear. They had this kind of clear vision at that point that kind of was started in the 1800s, you know, the Victorian idea of like um, uh, constant progress, like constant, you know, ever since the Industrial Revolution, essentially, right? I yeah. think nowadays maybe people are a bit more, even in the scientific community, are probably a bit more open to the idea that, yeah, we can fall at any time, you know what I mean? Like, and, but, um, I think there's still like a lot somewhat, um, uh, resistance idea that we survived cataclysms, which I find interesting because often it's just like lumped in with like, you know, crazy conspiracy theory ideas, but it's not really, I mean, if you think about it, every single civilization in, in the entire world has a, a flood myth, you know what I mean? There's, it's literally every single, there's not a single, I've never heard of a single, mythology that doesn't have something like that in it at some point you know what i mean like yeah that's just like the, you know the mythological description of what happened in the past you know it's just like you know they're they're rendering of something into a folk tale which gets passed down through generations and then you get you know the bible you know you get the epic of gilgamesh you get all that sort of stuff talking about a you know a cataclysm that happens that wipes out most of the population of the planet and then you know that and that's where we find you know cult you know, atlantis had been wiped out and its former glory had been reduced to just barbarism and that's where we get these characters you know they're they're part of a fallen glory of like a past civilization 
and um you know so they're on this sort of the, you know the the lower rung of civilization and you know the, these men of barbaric means making their way in a more or less civilized world yeah and I mean, another point that he always has is that there's like you can have both at the same time you know like yeah. you have certain cultures that rise as others are falling and some are falling as other rise you know like that's not like everything all is the same everywhere because it's not because you know i mean if you think about like even um you know say the past seven thousand years right um like um well, and then one thing I was also going to bring up too is that there's there, there there's those excavations going on in Turkey right now with giant temple structures, giant this giant city with all this like, um, I think I forget what the name of it is, but it's like this really complicated type of structures and and artwork and stuff that dates back to pre Egypt Egyptian times, right? Which is pointing that our ideas of of time are completely wrong that there are remnants still of some greater civilization that people didn't even think was possible before Sumner before Egypt you know but if you think about what we do know of at this point with like Egypt for example Egypt had a pretty the from the old kingdom on like 4000 BC or something like that had a pretty much a static um kind of high level of civilization with with rises and falls with like you know you had like hiscos like invasion things like this going on but it basically stood like static for thousands and thousands of years even as other civilizations like some like summer and babylon and assyria rose and fell egypt was still there you know what i mean so you can and at the same time you had probably uh some type of um you had the Greek civilizations, you had Phoenicians, you had probably a megalithic civilization that was able to build, you know, very complicated um, uh, stone circles and stuff like that spreading from Turkey all the way to to uh, Britain. You know what I mean? Like you had all this stuff going on at the same time. So you had all these different, and at the same time you had other cultures that were, you know, I know in like Africa, they had like pretty like, um, had some, uh, pretty like high civilization like cultures as well you know i mean like this all existing at the same time you know at different rates and i think howard definitely i'm you know positioned all of his works in this way so if you look at the hyborian age you have each culture is kind of at a different level you know you know you know one kingdom they don't really talk about too much is the hyper hyperboreans yeah, the hyper, yeah, the hyperboreans, like the, they, they yeah, because that was something that they, um, uh, explored with like the Lynn Carter, Sprague de Camp stuff, is like having them as like these like, kind of like sorcerer, yeah, kind of like yeah, like almost non-human beings, yeah, but in, in his main, in Howard's main stories, because you know later on I discovered that the Ace paperbacks were like not the true um, versions of the stories, yeah. but he doesn't really go into too much detail with the, that civilization. It was like you're saying it's extrapolated by DeCamp and uh, and Lynn, and uh, Lynn Carter. Yeah, and then Roy Thomas did some stuff in that as well that was his own because he generally tended to just ignore the Carter and DeCamp stuff. I noticed yeah. like, <laughs> um. 
he just which is probably smart he just he went off of howard and then extrapolated his own stuff um but uh yeah there's a lot of parts of the world that we don't really see too much in the conan stories you know like Obviously, we have a Stygia, which is Egypt. So he's presenting the idea that Egypt was even Egypt, like, before the cataclysms. You know what I mean? Like, it's been Egypt for, like, millennia. Um, And you had uh, a lot of his stuff is set in, like, Zamora and kind of, like, uh, what was that one? Um, Turan, Turan, you know? and That's more like the Middle East, sort of. Yeah. And then he did do... Stories obviously said in Aquilonia and Media and stuff as well. But uh, yeah, uh, well, part of that too is he seemed to have a real fascination with um, with uh, with the Middle East. And, you know, he had a bunch of, there's literally a whole collection like El Borak, which is all yep. his desert stories, you know. Yep. So and I was going to ask you if you'd ever, if you ever read any of his more historical based, uh, you know, stories like his adventure stories that had to do with like you know the crusades and you know adventures in the middle east and all that i actually haven't really um i've read that horror story they did that was set in that that time period uh or in set in like babylon um but yeah, i haven't read a lot of his historical stuff i do know that that part of the impetus that he had for creating the hyborian age and creating the conan was that he wanted to create a world where he could combine all of his various interests in history into one thing where he didn't have to be like too worried about the historical vermi verm vermicellitude, you know, like, because yeah. I guess when he was doing his, his historical fiction, he did as much, it took him like a lot of time because he did all as much research as possible to try to recreate the time as, as accurately as he could. So with, with the Conan stuff, he was kind of like, okay, now I can be like, combine everything that I like into one world and I don't have to worry about it all like you know like being like historically accurate you know like to the point that even like some of his stories are almost like um are almost like uh pirate stories you know he could have he could have Conan do whatever he wants he could have a pirate story he could have a you know gone to back Black River which is like basically a frontiers frontiersman story but set you know what I mean like um right. uh and he could have like traditional like sword sorcery story. He could you know do all kinds of different stuff with this world, you know. Well, the um, it Marvel comic went really deep into that you know Queen of the Black Coast storyline with with uh, Billy, you know his you know Conan's like romantic interest. That 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 actual storyline they they kind of went pretty far in the in the Conan the Barbarian comic books with that. Yeah, I think there's and I think one of the epic collections I still need to pick up has has that um, storyline, but. Um, yeah, they, they kind of expanded upon all that stuff to like, cause, cause in the, in the story, Queen of the Black Coast, for example, like she, like they meet each other basically. And <laughs> she like, what likes his manliness. And that part, part is so funny. She like dances with him naked, and, like makes love with him in front of everybody. <laughs> and then you're like, okay. Um, but yeah, then, then you're kind of just kind of go over a whole period of time where they do all this stuff you know and it has ripples in the whole story because he gets becomes known as amra the lion yep. and um and he kind of leaves that behind but but the people down in in that area remember him and that's like um in in uh hour of the dragon when when he gets like um 
they like chain him up into like the slave galley and but he has some of his old some of his old like followers are there and he's like basically leads a slave revolt and it's like down with the masters and all this stuff like that and they like fucking kill all these guys and he takes over the ship <laughs> that's such an interesting thing about robert e howard because similar similar to um you know lovecraft he gets like you know pegged as some sort of like you know weird uh you know insensitivity towards uh diversity you know to put it in a you know academic way i guess but if you really read into his stories there really is this like anti-authoritarian like vibe to what he writes you know yeah like i said his stuff is all is very much anti-authoritarian it's anti like uh, slavery in a lot of ways you know what i mean like i think sometimes people also like seem to get a few things mixed up so like you know like the story um black canon yeah which is about like set on a slave plantation and stuff like when i read that story for example i get the feeling that howard is basically writing the way that people he heard spoke so it's not his voice necessarily that's like you know he's writing about people that he had met in his time and he thought a story set in this world would be interesting because it's a world that existed for a long time and you know he's just writing about it like he's not really like um saying that slavery is okay or nothing he's just writing in a story set in that time and place you know what i mean yeah and people get that confused they think that writing a story in that in of itself is somehow like makes you complacent or something and i don't think that's true because if that was true then you'd be like well something like diango by like um quentin tarantino for example dango unchained is like somehow racist you know because it's set in slavery time you know what i mean people talk the way they talked before you know but people don't say that about quentin tarantino do they you know what i mean like i feel like howard gets a lot of um you know obviously some of his stuff like with um um with like solomon kane is all set in africa and stuff like that but i mean even in that, I mean, I read, I just read those stories a couple years ago, like all the way through. And I didn't really feel like, I feel like there's sometimes where you're like, yeah, I mean, it's definitely somebody in 1920 talking about Africans, you know what I mean? But at the same time, like Solomon Cain makes friends with the Africans and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like he's not really, he's not really like, you're not really ever shown like black people as being like somehow subhuman or something like that. You know what I mean? So I feel like a lot of his rate, the racism and ideas that people throw at Howard, I find to be spurious where I feel like they're just repeating stuff other people are saying and they've never actually read Howard for themselves. You know what I mean? I agree with that completely, you know, and it's like, once again, man, even if you go to like Mark Twain, like, you know, any, any writer that's like, over like a hundred years ago, I mean, this is like, these, these stories are like written like a hundred years ago at this point, you know, like society changes and like the society, societal norms and the way people view the world have changed over a hundred years too. You know, so you can't use the same standards to like measure someone against that ex was existing and creating work a hundred years ago. Right. And I, but even like if we just look at Howard's like ideas, I mean, he was very much anti authoritarian. He's basically like a libertarian for all intents and purposes. Like I said, like he has an obvious kind of loathing and horror of slavery. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't seem, he's definitely not somebody who's like sitting there saying that, you know. Like I feel like a lot of his work doesn't doesn't really feel like to me to be like particularly um derogatory towards you know what I mean? Like 
yeah, or people, you know. And two of his major characters were deposing these like you know weak evil kings, you know, you know Conan and Cole. Yeah, I do. I do know a lot of people have problems with just like the way that people thought about stuff with like races and things like that at that time was just a way of. I think there's like the way people use described like groups of you know ethnic groups of people. You know what I mean? Like, and that's just how it was. People were speaking back then. You know, like so you can't really use that against it either. You know what I mean? It's like, and there's a point to that that you do have different groups of people who have certain traits about them. You know, and they. I don't really, I feel like, like I said, I feel like a lot of the, so a lot of the criticisms I see about Howard, I feel like are very spurious, you know? Yeah. Well, to tie this into uh, our, our active project of um, Darkness Weaves, you know, Robert, uh, Robert E. Howard is a direct influence on um, one of our other favorites, Carl Edward Wagner. And Wagner also played a big hand in keeping um, Howard's work in print at one point. Yeah, I mean, one thing you start learning about ha Wagner is that, um, you know, obviously, you know, Howard is popular with Conan and everything, but obviously we got these kind of bastardized ace paperbacks where unless you read, really looked at it, you wouldn't realize that some half the stories aren't even written by Howard, you know, and Wagner was actually pretty instrumental in the process of getting the original versions of all of Howard's work out in print in the 1980s. So a lot of the editions that he kind of edited that presented the pure Howard stories of Conan and, and Cole and a lot of his, and his horror stories and stuff. Um, that was a lot of Wagner's work. So like I've, even those, I think those Del Rey editions that, that we have, I yeah. think a lot of, a lot of that was based on, Wagner, what Wagner's work they've been doing in the 80s, you know? Yeah, yeah, those are the real deal, like, you know, as they were meant to be read, you know, and they, and they cut out all the, you know, DeCamp and Carter, uh, you know, pastiche pieces and whatnot. Yeah, and I'm in Wagner also wrote um, a Conan novel, which I read, yep. Road of Kings, which is, it's an, it's, it's not bad. Um, and then he did the Bran McMorn novel, um, which I like even more because it's really dark and fucked up. <laughs> like, yeah, he wrote, I mean, he definitely wrote it more in his own voice, you know, Wagner's voice and Howard's voice are a little bit different. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I like a lot of those, those, uh, those eighties, uh, um, Conan novels, you know, like, um, like Robert Jordan did a bunch and, like last year, I listened to all the Robert Jordan books. Is all the audio books for them are all on YouTube, and um, with the exception of obviously Conan the the Destroyer novelization, which is horrible because the, that movie is horrible. Um, oh, actually, that leads me that leads me to this next topic I want to talk about real quick. <laughs> like, what what's your take on the on the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies? Because I know that this is this is going to be a very divisive subject. I think. Well, I love I love the first movie. Like. Yeah, I remember seeing it when I was a when I was a kid and being obsessed. You know, obviously, like I had already read Howard and 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 the comics and stuff. So you know, obviously, like my vision of Conan when I read the stuff isn't really Arnold necessarily, but I I still love the movie. Like I think that the vision of it that it has is great. Like um, the world that they built, and um, you know, 
I, I really like it. I know, I know that you don't like it very much, but <laughs> I've grown to appreciate it just as a movie. You know what I mean? And yeah. like very, very beginning of the first Conan movie, like that opening scene when he's a, when he's a kid. Yeah. It's brilliant. I, I got, I remember when I was a young kid, you know, I was like, whatever, like 12, 13, I think when I saw that. And, um, and I was like, okay, I can get into this. But then like, and, and it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger's fault. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of his, but just uh, the direction it went into was not what I was expecting, even as a, as a young kid, you know, cause I was, you know, steeped in, in the, the short stories and the comics and all that sort of stuff. And then, but as time went on, I appreciated the movie. It just has like an Arnold Schwarzenegger film based on a character that I really like, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the best way to, to approach it is it's, um, it's kind of a standalone thing. They bring in little elements from the, the stories here and there. Um, some of the elements like him, like running from the wolves and, and falling in and finding that Atlantean sword, like, uh, is actually from the, uh, I think it's from Sprague de Camp or Lynn Carter, I forget which, like from the paperbacks. But so they took stuff from the paperbacks and kind of melded in their, their, uh, their own thing, but it has some great, portions like i'm really i really love the part where they go and the steal the jewel from Tulsa doom's like um place and he has to kill the giant the giant snake yeah like that whole part really felt like very much like a love like you know like a like a howard story in a lot of ways where he's you know sneaks in and everything um so yeah it has it has a lot of good good parts to it yeah Tulsa doom is actually a cold character the villain yeah it's also doom's original cold the reason I think Tulsa Doom ended up in Conan was because of, uh, again, Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter, because they made a character named Tulsa Doom. He ended up being his like arch nemesis in the uh, Ace Com Ace paperbacks, and I think they even brought Tulsa Doom into the Marvel comics as well. I thought it was Thoth Ammon in uh, in the comics. Then that yeah. was yeah, I think it was Thoth Ammon maybe. Yeah, no, you're right. It's Thoth Ammon or whatever. And I'm pretty yeah. sure Thoth Doom was the, the villain in the Ace paperbacks, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, because like the call stories, it was Thoth Doom was it was his like nemesis in that. Yeah. Yeah, I but think he, it was. Getting back to Wagner real quick. So his character Kane is like obviously a uh, a call out to uh, Conan and the you know the characters of Robert E. Howard. However, Wagner adds his own element to it, making uh, Kane to be more of a supernatural being as opposed to a mortal. And um, one of my, one of my hopes is that once we wrap up the, uh, in a, in a lonely place, we move on to the Kane character of, Robert, of, uh, of uh, Carl Edward Wagner. Yeah. I'll have to, unless they, unless they magically issue some of the stuff in the meantime, I'll have to just get the, the, the Kindles, I guess. <laughs> yeah, they're all on Kindle with miserable artwork. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. There is a, a seller on Instagram who apparently has the full set, but I, I don't really have $120 to spend on the full set of Kane, Kane yeah. novels right this second. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I'm fortunate enough to have the three novels um, that I bought back in the day, and I have... I went out and uh, <laughs> I ha I purchased that Midnight Suns collection of the short stories. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't recommend anyone do that. <laughs> um, but I do recommend anyone who's interested in discovering about Kane, 
if you're into ebooks, definitely check checking all that stuff out on Kindle because it's all there pretty much, you know, at a reasonable price. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Con uh, Howard's characters are never, yeah, none of them are supernatural. They're all like, they all have like a animal vitality though. You know what I mean? Like Con the stuff that Conan survives is, is crazy or, or, uh, Solomon Kane is, I would say that Solomon Kane in some ways feels a little bit closer to the character of Kane. Yeah. He's just not supernatural, but like this kind of attitude feels kind of, I don't know. Kane, Solomon Kane is kind of funny. Like, cause he's kind of, uh, a little bit more, uh, I don't know. He's cynical in a way. He's like a, supposed to be a Puritan, but he like enjoys like his like adventures. You know what I mean? Like he's very dark and brooding. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, um, you know that that's kind of the typical characterization of a lot of Robert e. Howard's heroes is that they they do have this restlessness about them where they just can't stay put. You know they can't. They're all traveling. They you know like uh, Call is from Atlantis. You know Robert E. Howard uh, Conan is from uh, Samaria, and um, Solomon Kane is like a European that found his a Puritan that found his way to Africa for these adventures. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, so it's like this restlessness that all the characters share. I feel like that's when we're talking about the broodingness of Cole earlier. I feel like that's a, a real driving element of that is he has this restlessness, but now he's finding himself to be the king. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And he has to stay put. He can't go off on adventures. He has to deal with boring topics like administration and whatnot. And then. Also contend with all these people scheming to kill him, you know? <laughs> yeah. And obviously the, the Conan stories are the same way. I mean, the first Conan story starts, a Phoenix on the sword starts yeah. off with Conan as king. And it's basically it was actually a repurposed call story. And it's dealing with him having to, uh, to uh, deal with a assassination attempt, but it's still, a, it's still a great story, but it literally did start as a Cole story originally. So but yeah, they got Hour of the Dragon, which is the same type of thing. So that's uh, that's a, our our overview of uh, the world of Robert E. Howard, and uh, you know that's something. Hopefully, you, you, we can get back to doing some of these things together. You know, talking about some of the stories and the horror stories, and maybe some of the Conan material at some point. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to to uh, get that going at some point. Yeah. Hitting hitting the, the the all the Conan stuff. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll uh, we'll check you guys out in the future, and I'll talk to you all next week. Take care. Hey, fire.